Change is not a synonym for good. Change can be positive. If we're overweight and we lose that weight, that's a positive change, provided the weight loss is accomplished in somewhat of a healthy manner. If we're out of shape physically and we get back into shape, then that's a positive change. If we're in debt and we get out of debt, that's a positive change. But not all change is positive. If we're at our goal weight and we gain 20 pounds, well, that's hardly a positive change. If we're in shape and we, then we can our exercise routine, that's hardly positive. If we're out of debt and then we go run up the credit cards, that's not a positive change. Change may be an effective buzzword in political campaigns, but it's not always a good thing. Human beings have an innate tendency toward escaping what is perceived as a negative situation. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The Apostle Paul, when faced with what he described as his thorn in the flesh, prayed three times that the circumstance might change. But it didn't. The prayers were legitimate. By the way, I, I know that there are some that teach that he shouldn't have prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Not true. Perfectly legitimate to pray for that change to take place. But once it was clear that that change that he wanted wasn't going to take place, he realized there was something for him to learn. And he knew that he needed to learn, to learn to be content in whatever circumstance he found himself. He needed to realize that if the Lord left him in that circumstance, it was for his own good so that he might mature in his faith. He needed to learn contentment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 40, Paul addresses six groups of individuals who all have a tendency to want to change their present circumstances in order to make their life better. First, he addresses widows. Then, those who are married but are unhappy in their marriage, followed by those who find themselves married to a non-Christian, then in what at first glance might seem to be a parenthetical statement, but we'll see it turns out not to be, Paul addresses those who are Jews who think that they would be more content now that they're Christians if they unconverted to Judaism or, un or left their Jewishness behind, and then he addresses Gentiles who think that they might be more spiritually fulfilled if they became Jews. The fifth group that he mentions are Christian slaves who deeply desire their freedom. And finally, Paul addresses those who are single and deeply desire to get married. Six groups. And the overriding message will be, remain as you are. The answer to discontentment is not necessarily to change the circumstance, even though at times it may be legitimate to do so. Five times in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, remain as you are, remain in the state that you're in. The answer is not changing the present circumstances, even though there's an innate tendency for us to want to do that. 
That's why chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is such a difficult chapter for us to grasp and to apply. It goes against our natures. But Paul says, stay where you are. Even though it may be very legitimate for you to change, don't rush into that change. Stay where you are. Learn contentment right where you are. The answer, the prescription for all six of these situations, and others in general, is to place your focus in life squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul will put it, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. To put it another way, instead of having as our highest priority to get out of the present uncomfortable circumstance, our highest priority should be to learn to be content in whatever the circumstance may be. And the only way that that's going to be accomplished, the only way, is Christ becoming the single most important person in our lives. That's it. In this passage, Paul is not attempting to minimize the pain of loneliness or the heartbreak of a bad marriage. He's simply saying that running away from the circumstance is not the answer. He's not saying that it's illegitimate for a slave to seek his freedom. But the procurement of that freedom will not guarantee happiness. Don't attempt to solve uncomfortable circumstances by getting out of them. Wait for God. That's the message of this chapter. Wait for God. To the widow, Paul said that they have a perfectly legitimate right to remarry. That's clear in the last two verses, verses 39 and 40 of this chapter, provided that they marry a believer. And if the widow is not able to control their passions, physical passions, it's better for them to remarry than become promiscuous. But remarriage is not a cure for lack of contentment in life. As appealing as that might seem, because loneliness hurts. I understand that. I've never been widowed, but I understand loneliness, I understand pain, and I know that it hurts, and Paul knows that it hurts too. He's single as he writes this, very likely widowed, although we can't say for sure. Loneliness is so painful, but in the same way that the cure for loneliness would not be to turn to alcohol or drugs, the cure for loneliness is also not to rush into another marriage. It's legitimate, Paul says. There's nothing sinful about it unless you rush into it for the wrong reasons and then you're asking for disaster. So what Paul says is to the widows, stay right where you are. That's my advice to you. That's my spiritual advice based upon my apostleship under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Stay where you are. Learn to be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And I would add, if you learn contentment in your present circumstance, then the Lord may very well bring somebody else to you. But until you learn to be content, you may go through four or five more husbands or wives until you realize that another human being is not the one that's going to bring you that contentment. I hope you see what I mean. It's going to be the same way in all of these things. Remarriage for a widow is legitimate under certain circumstances. But it's not a cure for loneliness. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul states that divorced should not be pursued as, an, as a option for unhappiness in marriage. 
Jesus did give what could be described as an out in marriage. When it comes to divorce for a Christian couple, and that one out was marital unfaithfulness. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. He didn't command divorce in the case of unfaithfulness. But he did give an out. Preferably, reconciliation should be sought. If it's at all possible, forgiveness should be issued. If it's at all possible. But there are some times when it just isn't. When the offending spouse isn't repentant, when the offending spouse intends to continue to do it, I I called it last time serial adultery, there may be times when it's just not going to happen. But if it's possible, God would prefer a reconciliation. But only in that extreme circumstance. And by the way, irreconcilable differences may be okay for the court system, but it's not okay in a Christian marriage. That's not an excuse for Christians to divorce. What Paul is saying in verses 10 and 11, it's preferable to stay married and to work it out. Don't seek a divorce because you're discontented. A divorce is not going to cure your unhappiness. You may think it will, but it's not going to do it unless it's the God-prescribed way. And that's a very narrow aspect. In fact, not everybody even agrees with that. Some theologians would say, under all circumstances, you must forgive them. But Jesus is the one that gave the out. It's difficult for me to see how we can not utilize it if it's, if it's appropriate. But that's a very extreme circumstance. Again, the operative principle is learn to be content. In whatever circumstance you find yourself, including an unhappy marriage. What about those... And I, I know there are people listening to my voice today and that will listen to it on the tape later. What about those who are already divorced? And you're thinking in your mind, well, I got divorced. It was years ago, but it wasn't for adultery. What's it for me now? What should I do? You already know the answer. Remain as you are. Sometimes Christians get the wildest ideas in their head. They may be 15, 20 years down the road into another marriage where they're content at this point. Good marriage, they read that, well, wait a minute, I didn't have a right to get married in the first place, then I need to blow this one up. I'm out of here. I've had to please God. And God says, are you out of your mind? Are you really out of your mind? Did you check your brains at the door when you became a Christian? Of course not. Remain as you are. If that's the state that you're in, remain as you are and walk with the Lord in obedience to Him. Don't, Don't blow up another marriage just compounding the problem. Remain as you are. Don't be foolish. In verses 12 through 16, we saw in our previous lesson that Paul addresses someone who's married to an unbeliever. What should they do? Presumably, this is someone who became a Christian after they were married. They had an unmarried, uh, unbelieving couple. They got married. And then somewhere along the line, one of the people got saved. Should that individual who is now saved say, hey, listen, I understand we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. See you later. Of course not. It's, it's like the previous situation. Don't be foolish. Of course you don't do that. You stay in that marriage. You're to remain as you are. Because Paul says, how do you know that God won't use you to save your spouse? Remain as you are. Again, learn to be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself. I'm not saying this is easy. This is a difficult chapter. But it's an important chapter. We're all too busy running away from things. Instead of saying right in the middle of them, 
and trying to fix the problem right here and learning something about ourselves and our spouse. Can you imagine, though, even if it's a bad marriage or, not, or a marriage where there's, the contentment level is not what you want it to be, if you can learn just you, because you can't take care of your spouse. You can really ultimately, at the end of the day, only take care of you. If you somehow could learn to be content in the circumstance that you find yourself, do you think it's possible that you might could be easier to live with yourself? And maybe your spouse would have a little bit more contentment too? If you take care of yourself first, then maybe it'd be easier for you to have a contented marriage. But the reason Paul says that you should stay with an unbelieving spouse, if they'll have you, if they'll have you, is because you might be involved with regard to their salvation. Those three categories we studied together in our time two weeks ago. But now for the final three. In verses 17 through 20, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in the manner let him walk, and thus I direct in all of the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. Being in Christ, to use Pauline terminology, sets the individual free to live out their new life within the circumstances they presently find themselves. Are you Jewish, Paul would say? It's not necessary to become un-Jewish in order to be a Christian. Are you a Gentile and to become a Christian? It's not necessary to become Jewish. What is necessary, Paul says, is to follow the commands of God, not for salvation. That's already been accomplished for those who are referenced here. But for experiential sanctification or for growth as a Christian. So, are you a Jew and you become a Christian? Well, don't abandon your Jewish heritage. Are you a Gentile? Don't rush to become Jewish. This is something new. And so, while this looks parenthetical, the message is still the same. As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk or let him live. And this I direct to all the churches. Stay as you are, he says. So see, the message is the same. The example is just different. And then in a passage that can be controversial in our day, the passage on slavery. Slavery was different in Paul's day than it is today. But slavery is not desirable in any age. I would not, have ever, I would not want to be a slave in any culture. So when Paul addresses slaves and tells them, you guessed it, to remain as they are, this almost can be a head-scratcher. But let's look and see what he says. In verses 21 through 24, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. You read that passage in some audiences and they become apoplectic. 
Are you telling me that if I'm a slave and I'm a Christian, that I'm supposed to stay in my state of slavery? Is that what it said? No. It said if you can achieve your, your freedom, then feel free. Do it. But first, you need to learn to be content even as a slave. Now, I know that, that is abhorrent, but it's the word of God. It's abhorrent to some people. It's not abhorrent to me. I get it, and I think I hope you get it too. No matter what circumstance you find yourself, even if you're a slave, learn to be content in that particular circumstance. Slavery in the United States was a dark period. There's no way to get around that. We can say, well, it brought some people from Africa over here so they could get the gospel. God can work even evil things out for good. We shouldn't pretend that slavery is good in any circumstance. But I'll tell you what, there were slaves in the United States that while they were in a very negative circumstance, worshipped the Lord in an incredible way. And they matured right where they were. They didn't go hang their masters they didn't try to run away. They got this passage. Now, I'm not saying that it, slavery was okay. It wasn't. We need to come to grips with that, even though there might have been some good things that came from it, like some people's salvation. But of course, it was a bad thing. And it was a bad thing in Paul's day as well. But the point is that each man should remain in the condition that they are. Verse 24, brethren, let each man remain with God. See, if you do find yourself in slavery, and someday you might find yourself in slavery of a different kind. Who knows? I, I pray not, but who knows? It may, may be coming. Even in the midst of that slavery, you can still mature in your relationship with God. Your life is not over. By the way, your life will not rise or fall based upon who wins elections. I have my preferences. I think you ought to have a preference. If you study the candidates in each particular race, you ought to vote your Christianity. You ought to vote your morality. You ought to learn about the candidates. And you ought to vote for the best possible one. But when all is said and done, when we get to the second week of November this year, if it doesn't come, come out the way you want it to come out, the way you, ought to, you think it ought to come out, it doesn't mean your life is over. It may mean your circumstances will lose a little bit of contentment that's entirely possible. That's entirely possible no matter who wins elections. But it doesn't mean your life is over, and it sure doesn't mean your spiritual life is over. No matter what the circumstance, learn to be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself. You see, I, I wonder if some days this 2 Corinthians is not going to be just theory for us. Just words on a page, something that happened to Paul a long time ago, and we argue about what his thorn in the flesh was. Was it physical? Was it spiritual? Was it the Judaizers? Who knows? It's very difficult to tell. I personally think it was something physical, but that's just my opinion. But instead of spending all our time arguing about what the thorn in the flesh might have been, maybe we ought to focus in on his message, and someday it might be very real to you. It may be real to some of you here right now. Some of you here backing up may be widowed and very lonely and very unhappy. Some of you may be in the middle of... Um, a marriage that's just not working for you. And you know exactly what Paul is saying here. You, you, that message from, first, from 2 Corinthians 12 is burning into you right now to learn to be content. You're scratching your head thinking, how am I going to do that? You're going to obey the commands of God. You're going to be in the Word every day. Your prayer life is going to explode. You're going to focus on someone other than yourself or other than your partner, other than your spouse. You're going to focus in on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way with slaves... They were not to focus on their master or their present circumstance. They were to focus upon the Lord Jesus 
Christ and learn to be content even in their slavery. Now, is it legitimate again for a widow to remarry? Sure. Are there circumstances when it's legitimate for a Christian couple to break up? Sadly, there's a very limited, narrow avenue there, but sadly there is. There are times when Christian marriages break up. Is it legitimate for a slave to seek their freedom? Of course. But if it doesn't come, you can still be happy no matter the circumstance. It's an extreme circumstance. But I think it makes the point. In this final section, Paul's going to spend a bit more time on this last category, uh, single people. Uh, He begins by calling them virgins. Verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give you an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I love the way Paul puts this. He said, I don't have a command from the Lord. It doesn't mean that what he's saying is not authoritative. It just simply means that the Lord didn't say anything about this in his earthly ministry. While he did say some things about divorce in his earthly ministry, he didn't say anything here. But he's being gentle with them. I have an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So don't, don't say, well, this, this is Paul's opinion. This is an apostolic opinion that's part of the Word of God motivated by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now that's going back to verses 10 and 11. If you're, if you're married right now, don't seek to get out of it. If you're divorced right now, don't seek to remarry. Stay in the situation you're in. And the, whole, the implication for this whole chapter is, at the very least, until you've learned contentment. Verse 28, but if you should marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she's not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Paul's not trying to be funny here. He's a realist. He certainly understands what's happening. You put two people with two old sin natures together in a 1,200 square foot apartment and they're newlyweds, and they've got to try to learn each other's habits, there's going to be trouble. But marriage is a divine institution, ordained by God for the stability of society. And there's nothing wrong, Paul says, if you do get married, that's not a sin. But just like all the rest, he's saying, don't rush into it. Don't use it as a cure for unhappiness. I know you probably have too. I've talked to so many people that have seen their friends get married. They've seen their brothers and sisters get married, and and they're there without a spouse. Of course, during family gatherings, everybody's on their best behavior. It looks like everybody's getting along marvelously, and the only cure for my happiness is to get in the same situation that they're in. Now, if they could pull you aside privately and say, why don't you take your time? (laughs) But people don't do that. Marriage is a divine institution. It's wonderful. If you want to get married, you're not sinning. But don't do it as a cure for loneliness. And don't do it as a cure for lack of contentment. That's the message. If you get that, you get 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 29, but this I say to you, brethren. By the way, I haven't mentioned it before, but this whole chapter is for believers. The whole book is for believers. But I say this, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy 
as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of the world is passing away. These are verses that cause a great deal of difficulty for expositors, for commentators, for scholars. What's Paul talking about here? Is he saying the rapture is right around the corner? Is, does he have a different eschatology than he seems to preach in other places? I don't think that's what's going on. Paul just recognizes that in the future there will be troubles. I read recently, and I think it makes sense, that one of the reasons that we look so fondly on the past, at least most of us look fondly on our past, the high school years perhaps, or college years, the good old days, I love that song that, that one sang, These Are the Good Old Days. I think it was Carly Simon. I think that had a lot of spiritual truth to it. But we look very fondly on the things of the past because we got through those times, didn't we? Even though there were trouble in those times, we got through that period. And it's in the rearview mirror. And we say, God took care of me. I made it through. I made a lot of bad decisions, but he still rescued me through all that. Whereas the present circumstance, there's still this nagging doubt in the back of our mind whether he's going to do it again. Is he going to take care of us this time, in this present distress? All Paul's saying is the distresses are going to increase. They're going to amplify. It seems that way in life. When he says that those who have wives should be as though they have none, he's not saying that they should leave that spouse. He's already made that clear above. He is saying that one should focus upon the Lord primarily and in the first place and then on the spouse. And then everything's going to work out fine. But I want you to be free, he says in verse 32, from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both in body and in spirit holy. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now that's the phrase that covers the whole chapter. To secure undevoted attention or devotion to the Lord. Whether that's a widow or whether that's an individual that's in a bad marriage. Or whether it's an individual who's in a marriage with someone who's not a believer. Or whether it's even the Jew or the Gentile that wants to be something else. Or the slave. Or the single person. The idea in our lives is to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And then if we can do that, then we've learned to be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Human beings want to run. We want to flee. When the weather's hot, I want to go to Colorado. Summertime would be a wonderful time to have a cabin up in Colorado. One of my heroes, Dwight Pentecost, when he retired actively from active seminary, bought a home in Colorado, thinking he'd be there a few years. I think that was 25 years ago that he bought the home. Dr. P lived a lot longer than he thought he was going to live. I always thought that would be so fun to leave the heat of Houston and to go to the cool of Colorado in the summertime. But the problem is you bring your... Contentment or your lack of contentment with you, the temperature really doesn't matter. Oh, it would be so great to win the lottery. You know, I mean, if I just, I would be content if I had that extra $153 million minus whatever the taxes may be. I'll pay the taxes. Just give me the $153 million. I'll be content. I'll be content with $100 million. How about you? $100 million? All day long. 
No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you know that? You wouldn't be. If you're not content now, you wouldn't be content. If you're not content with your debt and with American Express calling you in the middle of the day at work, if you're not content then, you're not going to be content with $100 million. Not going to happen. You think you would, and I know you're saying, try me. <laughs> I know, I said the same thing. Try me. But it doesn't work that way. You take your happiness or your unhappiness with you. If you're widowed and as lonely as you can be and, and as discontented as you can be and you get into a marriage, guess who you took with you? You. You know, all God's saying through Paul in this, in this wonderful chapter is fix you first. Make sure your spiritual life with God is right first. Then if your spiritual life is right with God and God did bless you with a financial windfall, you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. You're going to be a good steward of it and you're going to know exactly what to do with it. I know people that have won the lottery. And guess what? The one that I know the best didn't make their life any different. In fact, caused some problems. And I understand that that's more common than it is not for problems because they don't have the capacity. They took themselves to the bank with that money. <laughs> that's the problem. The checkbook is now with them, themselves. They were discontented before. And they're discontented now. That's the whole message, that we should secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And Paul's saying to the single people, and, and to single people who know that marriage is God's divine institution, who long to find the right spouse, he's saying don't rush into it. Make sure you mature where you are right now first. Because if you did marry, you need to understand, some of the time that you spend right now focused in upon the Lord, you're not going to have that time in the future. Because if you're going to be a good spouse, you need to spend some time devoted and focused upon your spouse. Now, it doesn't mean if you're married you can't be mature spiritually as well. Of course you can. One of the wisest things that I was ever taught was that a pastor's first ministry is to his family. You know, this idea that I'm going to dump my family and minister to everybody else and somehow because it's a higher calling, God says... Again, are you out of your mind? If you don't minister to your family, first and foremost, you can't minister to other people. In fact, that's there in 1 Timothy. It's in writing, by the way. If you can't take care of your own household, how can you take care of the household of God? Our first priority has to be to our family. And that's whether you're a, a pastor or an attorney or a, a school teacher or whatever it may be. You have, you have your profession that you do as unto the Lord, but you also have your family life. That's all he's saying in these verses 30 through 34. Marriage is legitimate. So if you're single and you want to get married and you're doing it for the right reasons and you already have contentment in your soul, jump on in there. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. If it's the right thing, it's the right person and you're already content, but don't do it seeking contentment. A, su a successful marriage from a Christian standpoint will be between a man and a woman who both find their ultimate contentment and their fulfillment in their relationship to the Lord. And then finally, in verses 36 through 38, since in the cultural setting of this epistle, fathers were largely responsible for making a decision as to whether their young daughter would marry or not are addressed. So in these final verses, verses 36 through 38, Paul makes it clear that if a father is convicted that it's the right thing for his young daughter to do to get married, 
then he should go ahead with it. But if he thinks it's not the right time, then it's also legitimate to hold his daughter back. He's not robbing her from happiness. I realize that that's very foreign from the culture that we live in in the United States. But in parts of the world, they can read that passage, verses 36 through 38, and it makes perfect sense to them because that's the way it still is. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, he should be full of age. If she should be full of age, and if he must do so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no restraint, that has authority over his own will, and has decided this, this in his own heart to keep his own daughter, virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. He's not preaching some sort of relativism. He's just saying if the circumstance is right for her to get married, give her hand up in marriage. If it's not right, though, then don't do it. And in our culture, less and less we ask the parents' permission to get married. Maybe it would be a better thing if we did. I had a lunch with my future father-in-law and, and talked to him, but actually, very arrogantly, I didn't ask for Cindy's hand. Looking back on it, I kind of wish I would have. I think it would have been a, a nice formality to go through. Because now that I have a daughter, I recognize what it is to give up a daughter in marriage. And boy, that was a tough thing for me, for me to do. Not because I didn't love my son-in-law. Of course I do. But because it's a difficult thing to give up someone that you have responsibility for before the Lord. Fathers have responsibility for their daughter. And we can understand that even in our own culture. But in other cultures, that responsibility extends to whether you'll get married or not just not just a formal, yes, I would be happy to give you my blessing. So here all Paul's saying is if you have the responsibility in this area, then if you give your daughter in marriage, it's, it's okay. But do it for the right reasons. One more quick note as we finish here this morning. Being widowed, being married, being married to an unbeliever, being a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a single person, does not mean that you're in a sinful state. When Paul says to remain as you are, he is speaking of non-sinful states. Naturally, if you're in a situation that would be described as sinful by definition, then please don't use this message to rationalize remaining as you are. If you're in that situation, then immediate change is in order. Let me be frank. With the culture that we live in today, marriage is something that oftentimes happens as an afterthought, after one has enjoyed the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. So please don't use this. Anything that I've said over this lesson or the previous one to say, well, listen, we're supposed to remain as we are. No, that's, that's if you're in a non-sinful state. Not if you're in a state that God doesn't ordain. So don't use that in the inappropriate way. That being said, change is not a synonym for good. Change can be a positive or it can be a negative, depending upon the circumstances. The point of this chapter don't attempt 
to solve uncomfortable situations by getting out of them. Wait on God. Learn contentment right where you are.